Compliance is a profession where people work tirelessly to make the world a better place. And there are hundreds of amazing and inspiring women who have helped the field develop into what it is today. Great Women in Compliance is part of the Compliance Podcast Network. So join Mary Shirley and Lisa Fine as they talk with women in compliance who are making a difference. Welcome to another special bonus episode of Great Women in Compliance, hosted by Lisa Fine and Mary Shirley. I'm Mary Shirley, and if you're new to the podcast, our bonus episodes feature experts in in a field who are not necessarily women in compliance, but have skills and knowledge to share and advance and empower women in compliance. Today's bonus episode guest is a great gentleman in compliance who really needs little introduction because he is already known to so many, and that's precisely the expertise that we're going to leverage off in today's episode. I present to you all my very first American friend in compliance and one of my dearest friends, Jay Rosen. Welcome to the podcast, Jay. First off, thanks for joining us. And secondly, thank you for being such a great support to Lisa and myself with the podcast and all of our other endeavors. You have cheered us on from day one and been a fantastic ally. For the approximately two people listening who don't already know you, why don't you share your slightly unconventional journey to a career in compliance? Well, thanks, Mary. I'm really excited to be here and look forward to our conversation. Um, Let me try to give you the the bullet points on how I got from uh, a career in Hollywood to being uh, at Affiliated Monitors. I came to Los Angeles in the late 80s. And first I worked at a couple talent agencies and then I worked at 20th Century Fox, which is uh, now owned by the Walt Disney Company. Uh, While I was at Fox, I helped uh, produce 14 movies, including Speed, Mrs. Doubtfire and Alien 3. And, um, you know, my thought was that I was going to go through, uh, you know, filmmaking and rise up and to be a producer And I did that career from uh, the late 80s into about 2000. And the last movie I worked on was something called The Perfect Storm. And uh, after that, I decided that I had done everything I wanted to do entertainment-wise. And um, some folks from university said to me, um, you know, didn't you go to the Wharton School and get a, a real degree? So why don't you, like, get a real job? So I ended up getting involved with some um, graduates from my uh, college, and they had opened up an investment banking firm called Focal Point Partners. And I was there from uh, 2003 until when the market crashed in 2008. And that was when my twins, uh, Millie and Michaela, were born. And, um, you know, one thing that happened was uh, when I was at the investment bank, um, they started to downsize due to the market crash and they didn't need somebody there to be bringing in healthy deals because everything was uh, bankruptcy transactions. So this is where I start to turn in my career and I kind of get myself into the path on ethics and compliance. And I started working for the world's largest translation company called TransPerfect. And um, one of the things that I was doing was selling these things called virtual data rooms, where you can go in online and um, virtually uh, do a deal and do any type of due diligence. So it's something that's commonplace technology now, but it was really early stage back then. And TransPerfect, besides selling these data rooms, uh, also was a translations company. And I figured to myself, well, I should probably, you know, learn about these translations things because if it's something I can sell, it's some way to augment my income. So because of learning about the translation products that they had there, I got myself uh, involved with FCPA. And um, the story as I tell it is I was part of a group that was working with um financial companies and law firms, and we all brought different things to the table. And what I brought to the table was translations. And the partner who was in charge of this effort said, we should be using this solution for every FCPA matter. And I nodded my head like I understood what he was talking about, but I had no idea what FCPA was. So I ran home and put it in Google and it came back Fairfax County Park Authority. And I said to myself, I really don't think this has anything to do with my 
in-laws in uh, Fairfax County, Virginia, and their, um, uh, their park. So let me look again. And then it came back with the four most beautiful words that I've ever heard in my life, Foreign Corrupt Practices Act. Mm. And um, so realistically, from coming out to being in the movies and, you know, over like 15 years, uh, I got myself into FCPA. And then what I needed to try to do, since I didn't really know about this, I was really learning on the job. So what I had to do was ask a lot of intelligent questions so I could learn. And then what I ended up becoming helpful in was doing two things. One was helping when companies were doing global investigations and they would need to translate documents and translate you know, anything that had to happen. And the second thing that I really um, you know, enjoyed doing was working with global companies who had ethics and compliance policies that they had to uh, translate into 40 plus languages. So I was in the translation field from about 2010 to 2017. And then in 2017, I transitioned over to join Affiliated Monitors, which is based in Boston, where you are. And uh, this coming February will be my four-year anniversary. That's awesome. I've heard your story a few times now, Jay, in um, various different forums, and there's always new detail uh, that gets added each time. So that was really interesting for me, even though I, of course, know you and um, really grateful that you came into the FCPA space. And then aside from your day job, a project that you and I have been working on together is Compliance Career Connection, where we've collaborated with colleagues in compliance to set up support solutions and introductions for people who have been looking for a job during the pandemic. You were one of the instigators for the project. Why was it important to you that this initiative be started? I love the fact that you referred to me as an instigator because that is perfect. (laughs) That is what I do. Um, Again, this is kind of like a story that came out of nowhere, but in the fall of 2020, um, our good friends, Lisa Bethel and Tini Walker and Deanna Ayala had interviewed me on a podcast that they have for their mentor core group. And uh, immediately after the podcast was done, somebody reached out to me on LinkedIn. And this is somebody who's now a friend of mine. He's based in Toronto. And he was going through a little uh, career indecision and was looking to try to get a gig. So he reached out to me and I immediately accepted and we had a phone call. And um, as I was talking to him about what his needs were, my Rolodex started rolling in my brain thinking, you know, who do I know that does stuff at the World Bank or who do I know who's in Toronto? Mm -hmm. And I had introduced those names and and made connections because that's pretty much what I do. It's second nature. And then what really kind of kicked this off was I reached out to Lisa Beth and Dan and I said, hey, guys, I I just want to share a story with you. And I I think that there's something interesting happening here. And it was the fact that, you know, there's this immediacy of a connection because we had done a live podcast. And then uh, I kind of did what I do just of second nature. And my, I think, excitement and enthusiasm uh, led me to be the instigator for um, Lisa Beth and Dan. And then we kind of put together our merry group of Robin, robbers here who are getting together. And we're up to what now? Our third event that we're going to be having in January. Mm-hmm. Yeah, fantastic. So wonderful initiative there, Jay. And um, I think a great example of how conversations uh, that you have can turn into much bigger things. And no matter what your role is, even just being one person, you have the power if you reach out, use the resources around you and have like-minded people that also want to help, that there is a lot that can be done with with relatively small resource, right? We've we've put this together with relatively um, small uh, self-funding in terms of being able to set up platforms for communication and so on. And yet the, the response, I think, and the, the participation has been phenomenal and, and in my mind, at least almost um, unanticipated. Well, I, I think the, the one thing they hit on is how we've really just been able to 
crowdsources effort mm -hmm. that we've had different people with different skill sets mm -hmm. and we're all, you know, able to kind of almost share a vision that hasn't been created, but as it's coming together, we've got people like Sarah who, you know, has mm -hmm. a platform of mm -hmm. CCI and, and she's just really great with technology as with mm -hmm. Dan. And, um, mm -hmm. you know, it's, I think exciting for all of us to be able to make tangible differences in people's lives. Mm -hmm. And if we've, you know, I think there have actually been some folks who have already gotten new jobs uh, based yeah. to what we're doing at CCC. Mm -hmm. So it, it's it's really encouraging. And, you know, the second part that we'll probably talk about throughout this interview is just, mm -hmm. you know, how is our life different during the pandemic? And mm -hmm. most of us are used to seeing each other at events and catching up and doing networking. And that mm -hmm. is something that for most of us, we've given up for almost the past 11 or 12 months. Mm. And I remember the last in-person event I went to was the SCCE uh, Southern California Regional mm. Compliance Conference. And that is actually going off on this Friday, January 22nd. Mm. So that was the last event I went to in, in person. And, um, you know, I think we're all kind of, um, you know, hungry for the connections and what's interesting now is, you know, most people who are lucky enough to be employed right now are doing their work from home. Mm. And when you're doing work from home, it's very hard to have your boundaries between where's your workspace and where's your home space and where's your family space. And, um, you know, what's happened because of that is that we know now that people are home. It's not that they're going there and they might go to a walk, they might go and buy some things at the market, but besides the fact that they're home. So mm -hmm. I try to take advantage of that in terms of, you know, catching up with people mm -hmm. and, you know, whether you just grab 10 or 15 minutes, there's a lot that you can say. And, mm -hmm. you know, one of the first things that I ask people is how are they? Because mm -hmm. that is really what is uh, paramount on people's mind. How are we doing? How are we mm -hmm. doing from a work perspective? How are we doing from a social perspective? Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, that's something that I think the CCC uh, initiative is also feeding because it gives us a mm -hmm. chance to network with our community that we've been losing touch with over the last 11, 12 months. That's right. And that's the perfect segue uh, for, for my next question. So, Jay, one of the um, reasons why I thought you'd make a fantastic interviewee for one of our bonus episodes is that your superpower is being a fantastic connector of people and you can work a room like no one else. So let's do some knowledge sharing and break down some of the concepts in successful networking and couple them with your best practices and tips in these areas. So first off, what's your advice for someone who doesn't yet have an established network in compliance? And, you know, I'm going to ask you to think a little bit outside your own circumstances. You, you pointed out that we were very lucky in terms of having a team on CCC, which comes with a, a lot of fantastic skills. And we're very fortunate, or perhaps maybe I would should phrase that more accurately and say we've worked hard at establishing our networks over the last uh, several years and... Um, and tried to be good friends and connections to other people, which hopefully is why it, it became easy and quick to set up CCC with a diverse range of skills. But not everyone's like that or everyone's got to start somewhere. So what's your advice for someone who doesn't yet have an established network and compliance and how should they go about getting started? And let's assume also that they're a little shy about doing so. Just like me, right? Exactly. Wallflower type. <laughs> So um, let, let me try to put on that hat because believe it or not, uh, there was a time when mm -hmm. I was shy. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, specifically when I came out here um, to get involved in the film industry, um, you know, besides being a fan and, you know, having studied some something about filmmaking in, in university, what my currency was when I was working uh, in the whether I was working at the talent agencies or movie studios, it's all about interpersonal connections. 
So when I was working on The Perfect Storm, it was a lot of folks who would come to the set. And since I was working with the executive producer, I would give them tours around the set or I would, you know, it's basically like being a goodwill ambassador. And when I left the film industry and started getting into investment banking and then with translations, these were all people who were selling solutions, but they were more technical in nature. Whereas when I was involved in the film studio, my currency was my interpersonal skills. So I had to kind of re-engineer myself and take it one step at a time. So the first thing I would try to do and with engaging with people is if I was going to a conference, I would take a look at who were the speakers that were gonna be speaking. And then I would say, well, what do I have common with these people? Did they go to university where I went to school? Are they from Boston? Do they like the Red Sox? You know, do they have twins? So I tried to find what were the things about me that could distinguish myself, that could make, it, make me someone interesting? And then again, how could I connect with these people by being respectful and asking a lot of questions? And, you know, some people say, oh, well, you know, Jay's a really great conversationalist. And, you know, my, my secret to holding up my end of the conversation is to be engaged with somebody and ask them questions. And people love to talk about themselves. It's usually their favorite subject. So you just got to get some people rolling. And once they get rolling, you know, then you've got it made. So by taking that first step of trying to figure out what is, what do we have alike? What do we have that is uh, contemporaneous that we can discuss? And then the next thing I would start to do is, you know, you, you build your posse when you go to different uh, conferences and you build your connections. And so then I would not only like work at, look at thought leaders, but I try to like look at people who, you know, are attending the conference and you got to get really good at reading badges very quickly. And, you know, a lot of times it was the first time that I would see people in person, but it's not that I didn't know who they were. We would connect on social media and do things like that. So, you know, another thing I would do is if I didn't get a chance to have a conversation with somebody who was a speaker, I would reach out to them on LinkedIn and say, I really enjoyed what you had to say at X, Y, and Z conference. Um, this is who I am and this is what I do. We share Mary Shirley, Lisa Fine, and Dan Ayala as common connections, and I'd like to connect with you. So when by taking that approach, I probably get LinkedIn acceptances six to seven times out of 10 tries. So the important thing is once you build that network, you can't be a collector of baseball cards. You can't just let that sit on the side untended, but you need to follow up immediately. So after you make that connection on LinkedIn, then the next thing you would do is within the day or so, reach out and say, thank you so much for connecting with me. Um, what I usually like to do with folks that I connect with on LinkedIn, I love to have a 10 to 15 minute intro call just so we can speak to learn more about what you're doing and see how I can be of assistance to you. So that's, you know, finding the people at the conference, connecting with them on LinkedIn, then having a conversation and then hopefully that conversation leads to you becoming compliance buddies or leads to you having some common things to discuss. And then if I would read an article that had something to do with their business or if there was something interesting that I remembered that one of their kids liked to play the oboe or something, whatever I could do to keep myself top of mind and to build it from being more of people who didn't know each other to people who were colleagues. So that's kind of like my way that by, you know, reading things, but by also kind of seeing other folks in similar ways to watch that, you know, that's how I learned how to network. But I think sometimes networking gets um, a bad name and sometimes because it's people who do it in a very mercenary fashion and they don't allow it to kind of breathe and develop and, you know, come into its own. But I think those are the things that I've 
learned about over the years. And like you said, now with the folks that we are in touch with in CCC, um, a lot of those people have that same skill skill set. So we almost can talk in shorthand to each other and know what the other person wants and what's, what they need. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's good advice. And um, I didn't do this deliberately. It was actually only when we started recording that I realized that hypothetical I put to you, um, that was actually me um, when you and I met. I didn't have a network. I was very shy. Um, and so all of the, the tips that you explained there were um, a great way for, for helping me um, connect with someone new and um, through you I would later um, grow a much 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 bigger network so I can attest that the advice of Jay is um, incredibly useful it works <laughs> <laughs> so you've talked a lot about um, conferences here and how they can provide uh, an excellent opportunity to, to meet with people so when attending an event, what should be the approach for getting the most out of attending like a networking drinks, for example? Yeah, great question. So uh, I, I think, you know, unlike some people, I do a lot of prep before I go to a conference. So I, I prep in terms of taking a look at, you know, who are the speakers? What are the subjects? What kind of things a either lend themselves to be doing complimentary what I do, or what kind of things you know do I want to have uh, new experiences at? Because I think a lot of times when you go to a conference, uh, it's good to get outside your comfort zone, and it's good to oh you know I don't really do much with internal controls or with Star Starman's Oxley, so let me go to one of these things even though it's it's out of my comfort zone. You know I don't know who I'm going to meet there or. You know, maybe I do more in ethics and compliance conferences, but maybe if I do something with the certified fraud examiners, you know, that's going to be of interest to me. So number one is to kind of push that comfort zone. Number two is to do that prep on, on social media. And, you know, whether these folks have, if you're connected with them on LinkedIn or Twitter or Facebook or Instagram, you know, kind of take a look at what they're what they're talking about these days, what they're doing, and, and put that in the back of your mind because that might, you know, come up in a conversation. And, uh, you know, once you make those connections, um, what I've been doing to talk about what we talked about earlier in the call is there are certain folks that I have quarterly calls set up with them. So we will have a discussion. There's a buddy of mine from Chicago. We spoke last week. We caught each other up on what we're doing personally and what we're doing professionally. And then for 90 days from there, we put another uh, date, memorialized it in our books so we knew we'd be speaking. Um, so connecting with them, having follow-ups, and then supporting them. So, you know, uh, when my friends and buddies are on different podcasts, like we talked about with Lisa today or your interview with um, Christy, you know, I, I want to know uh, what my uh, universe of folks are up to, and I want to be able to, you know, stay current with them and shoot them a note and say, really enjoyed that article, or you know, I like to do this, or you know, what what we're doing. Uh, Tom Fox and I are doing a podcast on X, Y, and Z subject. Is this something that you might be interested in joining us? So I think all that stuff feeds in, and as I said before it's more important than ever now because of the pandemic. Absolutely. Some, some great gems in there, uh, Jay. And I would echo your uh, comment about the comfort zone aspect, but from a different angle, which is, in my mind, it's just good business. If I'm practicing in a certain area of compliance today and I only pay attention to that area, that's not looking out for the Mary of tomorrow who might be wanting to apply for a job where maybe export controls is included. And I don't want to default to, oh, the last time I really worked hard on export controls in my day job was back in 2013. Um, you want to be up with the play, right? You want to be able to talk the talk if you ever need to in the future. So I think keeping an open mind as to, 
um, all of the various subjects in our periphery, even if they're not part of your current day job, is just good business. Um, and equally, thinking beyond compliance, and I think you pointed out something that Alan Hunt um, often refers to, which is we have a great network of people in the sort of risk, compliance, data privacy, data security sphere, but you're doing yourself a disservice if you don't broaden your network further than that and think, well, other people can't help me, so why do I why would I want to talk to them? That's ridiculous. Um, and, and that's thinking about it on a very transactional basis for networking. And once you're doing that, you're networking for the wrong reasons. Mm-hmm. When you network for the purpose of genuinely wanting to get to know people, genuinely um, being of service to other people, I think you're going to be most effective. And, and that goes back to the mercenary comment you made earlier. You do not want to be <laughs> mercenary <laughs> approach to networking. Uh, Jay, one of the um, next questions I had for you, you've actually touched on really well, but I just want to make sure that um, we leave no nuggets behind. So I was going to ask you, what is your advice for follow-up and continuing the conversation after meeting someone at an event? And I know that you've already mentioned some great tips there on setting up regularized phone calls, um, keeping the person in mind. If something comes up and you're like, hey, this article is exactly on the topic that we were discussing when we met in person, why don't I just forward this on and share it to them? Or Um, that kid who plays oboe, um, I will send them, you know, this funny YouTube video to pass on to their kid. Um, Is there anything else that you can think of in terms of follow-up that um, we've we've not already discussed? Well, I just think that um, to kind of take a long-term view that the the relationship never ends. So Mm -hmm. whether you're at different companies or different jobs or you know, in your past, at one point you were a solution seller and now you're in-house. So if you're that mercenary salesperson, you're, you would say, oh, well, you know, why, why do I want to talk to so-and-so? Because I used to sell translations, but now I'm selling, you know, independent monitoring. Mm-hmm. They're not going to have any need for that. So why do I maintain that? Mm-hmm. And there are still, you know, my old boss in the translations field I still get in touch with him because when mm. people ask me about translations, I'm like, you got to talk to Jim. So these people are people who you're going to meet in your industry for the rest of your career. And if you become personal friends for the rest of your life, so you have to maintain that connection. And sometimes they're going to be used for you. Uh, sometimes they won't, but it never changes. And I just don't think, that you want to truncate a relationship because it's not paying dividends. Mm. Yeah, great point. We've got some listeners who are consultants or work for vendors. And I know from my own experience working for a vendor, you can worry about whether people think you're just trying to get to know them to push products or otherwise sell things. And as I've been pretty vocal about sitting on the other side of the fence, it can be very off-putting when salespeople are lovely to you until you don't immediately drop $30,000 in their laps when they ask for it. How can staff of vendors and business owners and compliance approach networking to help avoid the concern of networking just to try to hard sell immediately? All right, I'm going to let you take a breath and, and, and just blow it all out because because I know this subject matter is uh, vexing to you at times. And I think what I want to try to do is... Um, wrap up some things I've said before, but kind of take a look at them in a different light that whether somebody is going to be a client of yours and they're going to buy something from you at some point before you ever get to that point and have standing to give the ask, you first need to build that relationship. Mm -hmm. Relationships can be built in different ways. Uh, Sometimes they can be built over milkshakes at Swenson's on Hollywood Boulevard with a guy and his two twin babies who forgot that he was taking care of them on a Sunday, but asked if it'd be appropriate if they could come along on a business trip. That was our story. That was our meet cute Jay's and mine. So so what did you think when I called you and said, so Mary, um, I'm going to change this up a little bit, but I'm supposed to be taking care of my twins. Do you mind if I bring them to our coffee? What, what did you think when you heard that? 
Well, you know, that was actually quite some time ago now, Jay, but I love children. I don't have any of my own. And so um, for, for, for that to be um, an added part of a meeting, I thought that was pretty cool. And, um, and uh, I've gone on to meet your daughters um, at, at occasions thereafter. And um, for, that ended up being like a, a, a nice little angle for, for you in terms of continuing the conversation as well, right? for, mm-hmm. um, you know, sending pictures of the girls and so on um, as they were growing up. So while I can't remember my exact thoughts of the moment, uh, I, I do recall not hesitating to say absolutely bring them along. Um, and I always think that a little bit of difference is critical for differentiating ourselves. And I like differentiating myself um, from everybody else. I don't want to be um, the same sheep and I don't mind being the black sheep a lot of the time. So when you're able to differentiate yourself like that, um, it makes you memorable, right? It makes the event memorable. It makes it different. Um, and, you know, assuming you weren't someone that I would end up becoming friends with later on, I'd always remember you as the sales guy who brought along his, his <laughs> babies. So, um, I'm, I'm not necessarily suggesting this as a sales technique moving forward, but it certainly didn't harm anything. It made it more interesting, um, I think, in terms of it being a, a unique experience. And um, it's been such a pleasure to watch um, those babies grow into um, tweens. And um, they had their bar mitzvah recently. Um, and uh, just such a such a, a pleasure to, to now be involved in, in their lives as a bit of an outsider we live in in different areas but um that certainly added a, a really cool angle to our relationship yeah so you know that was just all spontaneous i i it wasn't planned i wish i could say you know this this is the deal i put millie and michaela to work they each get a dollar and then they go <laughs> out and sell with daddy but so if, if we we talk about that was how we met and that was how we began our friendship um, it, it led to some mm-hmm. business when I was in the translation world. Mm-hmm. But, you know, what I want to take a look at now is whether you're selling investment banking, translations, independent monitoring services, they're all slightly different, but they're all very technical. And I, I think I've shared with you that my family was in the retail shoe business in New England, mm-hmm. and I sold shoes ever since I was 12 years old. Mm-hmm. So selling shoes and selling solutions are much different. Mm -hmm. But one thing that is central, when I was a 12-year-old kid and a gentleman would come in to buy a pair of Oxfords or wingtips, I could immediately read this guy and realize that he doesn't like shopping. Mm -hmm. And if he could buy all his shoes in 30 minutes at the shoe store, he would be done for the year. So besides selling him a pair of black and brown and cordovan, I might say, do you need some tennis shoes or do you need some running sneakers or can I get you a pair of, uh, you know, uh, slippers so you can wear on a cold winter's night? So Mm -hmm. this is probably back in the late 70s. -hmm. This guy, I could sell him $250 worth of shoes, which now would probably be fifteen hundred dollars and I was not getting commission on the sale my Mm -hmm. uh, family owned the shoe store so this is my job and working in the family business so I wasn't being motivated by money Mm. but again I was somewhat being I was selling a solution right my solution to this guy was if he got me and I helped him buy his shoes for the year he wouldn't have to be back here until another year so when you when I'm trying to transfer this selling over to selling a solution, I can size up the customer. But what I need to do with them, first of all, is kind of connect with them and gain their trust. And when I was talking about the early stages, when I was selling translation solutions for codes of conduct and I was doing investigations, I was very much in the game, or not the game, but in the um, part of the relationship where I was learning just along with the people. So 
I had to learn about how I could save them money that if they were doing their code of conduct in the 40 languages, and if I had a manager who worked under me that every week would call the company and tell them the status of where they were on the different languages and what was being approved, that was something that was a value add that we didn't charge for. But because I took the time to understand the routine about draft, having legal draft the contractor, having legal draft the policy in English, and then translating it into the 40 languages, and then getting it approved by different people who were in-country resources, there was a lot of air traffic control there. And I was able to differentiate my company that we didn't do it any differently than any other company would have done it, but I was a lot more sensitive um, to the issue at hand. And furthermore, I liked it when they would ask me and say, Jay, based on what you've seen in the marketplace, are we better off saying, as a company, we have global zero tolerance for any corruption, or am I better writing that policy regionally so I do one thing to talk about the UK Bribery Act for the folks in England, and then I do a different thing and I quote the Brazilian Clean Company Act when I'm dealing with Brazil. So I got to a level of um, sophistication there that I could connect with my potential buyers that I could become a a trusted advisor to them. And then after only getting that position of having some knowledge base of what I'm doing and to be able to talk intelligently, only then at that point do I have the potential to become the solutions provider. But I just can't think of the folks. I mean, either they're drawn to you, Mary, because they want to annoy you, or what, but I don't, I can't think of trying to like meet somebody and within the first five minutes expect that they're going to drop money with me because mm-hmm. that's just not how the currency works and that's mm-hmm. not how the relationship should work. So mm-hmm. I, it just, it troubles me when I, when I hear your horror stories, I feel so bad for you. Well, the, the great thing is, is that the, the horror stories are really you know, they're rare, but when they do happen, they are kind of astounding um, in, in terms of... The but the last guy, he had an axe to grind, didn't he? Yeah, I didn't know the last guy. I, mean, I, was, I was actually planning on doing a, um, a uh, an episode on that separately, so I won't let you spoil that, Jay. Okay. We'll do a little teaser. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it tends to be... It's not super egregious um, for, for the most part. What, what I tend to see um, as someone in-house, and you can let, let me know if it's the same experience for you as someone in a business development role, what we tend to get quite a lot um, that it, it, it's not, um, yeah, as I say, it's not egregious, it's just it's super common, where you'll get someone trying to connect with you on, say, LinkedIn, and they'll be trying to sell to you in the introduction message. And so you're like, hang on, just give me, give me five seconds here. <laughs> um, yeah, so based on Jay Rosen's tips for success, that's typically not what you would do if you wanted to cultivate a good relationship with someone. And that type of thing, I would say, that level or that it's sort of that lack of self-awareness, I would say that's pr- pretty prevalent, at least in the ethics and compliance space with a lot of the salespeople out there. Well, one thing I try to do to, to kind of head these folks off at the pass is somebody will reach out to me and they're selling appointment setting software or they're selling some type of, you know, some type of scraping information off the internet to call people for, for sale leads. And I will, um, you know, when you get that LinkedIn connection, you can either accept it or you can deny it, right? Mm-hmm. So sometimes they, they may have changed how it technically works, but sometimes you can write back first before you accept. Oh, yeah. So yeah. I would say, dear Stephen, I appreciate you reaching out to me. Um, what I'm doing in this job is X, Y, and Z, and I'm not really sure your solutions are applicable to me. Is there another reason why you could see us, you know, benefiting from a connection on LinkedIn? Mm-hmm. And that's my, uh, my kiss off letter, right? Because mm-hmm. they never really wanted to talk with me in the first place. They just mm-hmm. wanted to tell me something 
I voiced my objection and I gave them an uh, uh, opportunity to come back to say why we should connect. And -hmm. they're like sharks, right? They're just moving on to the next target. Mm -hmm. So I I don't let anybody come in like that. I just Mm -hmm. say, look, you know, I'm in sales just like you. And this is, unfortunately, you don't understand my business or what you're trying to sell me is not very helpful. So Mm -hmm. in in the nicest way possible, I try to give them an opportunity to restate why it would make sense for them to connect with me. And they don't, it's too much trouble for them because they never really wanted to connect in the first place. Mm -hmm. My worry is that um, there are a lot of people who happen to have sales roles that genuinely just want to connect. (laughs) And so I don't want to, you know, be rude to anyone. Not not that that approach was rude, but you know what I mean? I wouldn't want to just close down a conversation um, with, with anyone just because they happen to have a sales role. And I think that's the, the tricky part. Um, well, but I think if they can't articulate the value, mm-hmm. then, then what's the point? So, mm-hmm. you know, if they, if they said, you know, Mary, I'm really interested in working in the healthcare space. And mm-hmm. I've seen you've done a lot of different things in your career. And especially mm-hmm. in your current career, you've worked globally for them. Would you have 15 minutes sometime just to talk mm-hmm. to me? You know, mm-hmm. and, and by the way, I read your and Lisa's book and I mm-hmm. loved it. I'm a big fan, mm-hmm. you know, something like that. Mm-hmm. Somebody's going to be genuine, right? Well, that's actually how the last guy got in. Um, it was really pretense of, of saying of something like that. Yeah. So um, uh, I, I think, I think you're right. By and large, that is a pretty good um, line in the stand to help you understand who's, you know, really just genuinely wanting to, to chat and network. Um, and, and people should be allowed to go out and try and sell things, right? Um, I think where, where there is difficulty is where it's masqueraded as something else. Um, so on a pretense, they, they grab your time, um, which was the, the, the case of the situation that we're referring to. Um, or just, you know, overly aggressive and won't take no for an answer. So some, some will argue with you if you explain that you're not looking for anything right now and, and, you know, go down a track of, well, clearly you're not doing your job very well if you're not doing X, Y, Z instead. Um, and, and that kind of thing does come up from time to time. So moving on to some um, positives now, I'd love to hear your golden rule for networking. Golden rule for networking. Which which number are we on for that? Number eight. Number eight. Okay. So um, I, I think we've touched upon this um, already in this conversation. Um, I don't think that there are any specific no-nos, but I think the thing that really I try to be is just to be authentic. Mm-hmm. And... Um, I'll give you an an interesting thing that I just did that I was having a a call with somebody who I would consider the co-opetition. So we're in the same space, but we do different things. Mm -hmm. And there is a client that um, is a a large industrial union client that is going to need to have a monitor. This person who I'm a friend with works for the company who is providing the hotline solution for that company that I'm interested in supplying the monitor to. So I called my friend up and we were having a discussion and I said, potentially if you'd ever work for a company that was a union who needed, um, you know, uh, a hotline solution and you did that, uh, would you be, would you be able to make an introduction for a company that was looking to provide Um, ethics and compliance services. So in that roundabout way, uh, I framed it as a parenthetical and I asked it as a question, but, you know, it was a question that, um, you know, by us being in the same space, I I get asked that question because I understood the guy and it was going out a little bit uh, on the line, but it also was something that we were both mutually looking to work with the clients. So that was something that, you know, based on my relationship, but also based on the knowledge from what I saw out in the marketplace, um, I had the ability to 
ask that question and ask it in a non-threatening way, if that makes any sense. Mm-hmm. And I have a um, golden rule to share, which is that in the um, heat of the moment, when you identify that two members of your network might make excellent connections for each other, best thing to do before you take any action for introducing them is to get permission from each person first. You never know who might not be in a position um, at the time um, for personal reasons to be able to uh, start up a discussion or for other reasons, maybe unavailable um, or unwilling. So checking before you make an introduction is always good. And that's especially when one person might have significantly more to gain from the introduction than the other. Yeah, I, I think that's good. Um, I mean, there, there's sometimes we you might know somebody who's always going to be open and always mm-hmm. be helpful. Mm-hmm. But, you know, like I, I had a situation that um, somebody reached out to me that I had met uh, in 2019 and he was interested in applying for a job. Uh, he had indicated that um, he and somebody who was working at the company both shared me as a connection and wanted to know if I would be happy to reach out and make an introduction. And I said, um, yeah, I said, just so you know, this person and I, we probably haven't spoken in six years, but I have Mm. no problems making the introduction. Mm So why don't you put together a little note on what you want to know? Mm -hmm. I will reach out to the gentleman and see if he's open for an introduction. And less than a day later, the guy got back to me and said, yes, I'm happy to speak to your friend. Just Mm. with one caveat is that whoever takes this position we want them to be in country. Mm. And if that's not going to be a parameter that your friend can meet, mm-hmm. then I don't want to have a connection. But, you know, uh, I, I brokered the introduction. The mm-hmm. guy sent me his uh, offline email address mm-hmm. and said, you know, have your friend contact me. So, mm-hmm. you know, you, you are you make a great point that you don't know where people are in their lives. Right. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, there's a friend of mine who's usually been very generous with her time, but you know, over the last six months of, you know, what she's been working on. I don't know if it's family related or pandemic related, but she's Mm. just like, I only have a limited amount of time that I can spend. And, you know, you you can't judge somebody's time. That's their own currency. So I I think you bring up a great point that, you know, just ask both sides. You you really shouldn't assume anything. And then, you know, because if you do assume at some point, somebody might say no, and then you don't look so great because you've offered to make the introduction, right. whereas mm-hmm. you know, you, you've know you got to give yourself that caveat. Either you would say, yeah. you know, I, I think that he, he would absolutely want to speak with you, but let me just check with him before mm-hmm. I make that introduction. Mm-hmm. So that, that's, that's great, great advice. And an easy way to do that is, you know, to be super um, data privacy friendly as well and just say, I want to get permission before I share contact details. Um, for those of us who, who come from countries with um, stricter data privacy laws, that's um, a, a sensible and reliable route you can go with. All right. Um, Jay, for Hanukkah of 2020, you put the book Sending the Elevator Back Down, What We've Learned from Great Women in Compliance on your list and your mum gifted you a copy. As you know, I'm a big fan of your mum. For for those of you listening, I've also met Jay's mum on a number of occasions. Um, And uh, I've had the privilege of of spending time with her. Um, And I didn't think I could adore her more. And then she got you our book. So what a legend. What's a lesson in ethics um, that you've learned from your mum that you still practice to this day? So uh, this goes back to 1975. Mm Mm-hmm when the Boston Red Sox were playing the Cincinnati Reds for the World Series. Mm -hmm. And for some reason, my father was going to take me to the the baseball game. It was game one of the World Series, which is, you know, a pretty important thing. But for some reason, he decided that since it was back to school, he should be working selling shoes to put food in his family's mouth. So – he always regretted not going to this game. So my mom took me to the ball game and we were way the heck out in the right field bleachers. And when they started to announce the Cincinnati Reds, I started booing. And my mother said, it is not very nice to boo the other team. Mm. 
I was 10 years old and I thought, well, what the heck is she talking about? But over the intervening decades, <laughs> I've kind of taken that information to heart. And mm -hmm. one of the interesting networking things that we always do at an SCCE conference is they usually have an opening night tailgate event and people wear sports shirts from their mm -hmm. teams, whether baseball or football or hockey or their university. And I can't tell you how many pictures I take with New York Yankee fans when I am wearing my Red Sox uniform or mm -hmm. how many people, you know, mm -hmm. um, how many Indianapolis Colts fans I'll see when I'm wearing my Patriots jersey, of course, prior to this past season. Mm -hmm. But what I chose to take from my mother's lesson is that somebody may ideologically have a different point of view or mm -hmm. they might support a different team, mm -hmm. but there is a certain type of respect that's built up between Red Sox and Yankees fans. And you can mm -hmm. yell at each other and tell them that they stink and their team isn't any good. But mm -hmm. at the end of the day, there's lots of pictures of me hugging somebody from the other team, mm -hmm. uh, you know, that ends up on the website. So I think that lesson not only is important when you're networking at uh, conferences, Mm -hmm. But it's also very important for everyone living in America today mm -hmm. that if somebody's rooting for the wrong team, it doesn't mean that they're bad, and it doesn't mean that that they've they've they're they, you know that they're out to get you. They have a mm -hmm. different perspective, and there's a reason why they're rooting for that team. So you have to respect them for the team they root for, and if there's uh, any, you know, change that you can make or if you can have an intelligent discussion about maybe why they should have a different point of view, that's something you can do. But I think that's a very timely thought to kind of wrap up our call. Uh, we're mm -hmm. speaking today. It's Inauguration Day in the United States. Mm -hmm. And there are a lot of folks who have different ideas than us and then support a different team. Mm -hmm. But I think now's the time for us to have a dialogue and believe that we all have a reason to have a different point of view, but ultimately we need to help each other because if we don't help each other, we're not going to be able to be around. Wise words, Jay. And um, to, to continue the theme to, to wrap up from my side, I wanted to share some confidence boosting, reframing, a really different way of looking at things from my mum. Um, when my brother and I were really little, uh, we both loved Scooby-Doo very much, um, the, the cartoon. And uh, as a teenager, I recounted my embarrassment to my mother that there were only ever really two villains um, to choose from in each episode. And I would always guess wrong. And I said, Mom, isn't that ridiculous statistically as well? Um, I feel so stupid. And she said to me, you didn't you didn't get it wrong. You just went in a different direction to what the writers chose. You didn't get it wrong. So with that, we end our episode with Jay Rosen. Thank you very much for listening and have a wonderful rest of your day ahead. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Great Women in Compliance. We hope you'll join us in honoring the great women in the compliance field by subscribing to this podcast and leaving a review.